Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get to it. Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a Bible uh, that's in the New Testament, if you're not real familiar with it, right after Galatians, and if you're using one of the Bibles in the the little rack in the chair in front of you, you can find that on page 688. And if you um, are new to the faith or you don't have a Bible or you just forgot yours today, you're welcome to use that. I encourage you to use it and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that and, and to, uh, to just read that Bible on your own. We'll also have all the scripture up on the screen today. And I think it's really important for you to, to read along with us and to eat, not just be you know, sort of uh, reliant on the words on the screen, but to actually follow along in your own Bible. That's one of the ways that you just become more familiar with the Scripture and, and, and your Bible. And so, um, all right, well, today uh, we are stepping off on what is going to be a few-month journey through one of the most uh, beautiful and important letters in the whole Bible. Ephesians is uh, just this incredibly rich doctrinal book there's a couple things that I want you to see in this before we, we launch off in this. This is six chapters in Ephesians, and we're going to go real slow through the first 14 verses. In fact, these first 14 verses, starting on verse 3 through 14, is actually just one sentence in the original Greek language that Paul wrote this letter in. And so it's kind of a, it's like a, a, a run-on stream of consciousness. It's like a burst of praise to God for what he has done for us in Christ, which we'll go over. But today in particular, um, we're going to just go over the first 14 verses. And actually, I think for the next few weeks, we're going to uh, look at just these first 14 verses because there's so much in them. In fact, we could spend longer than that. But just to give you sort of a roadmap of the next few weeks in just this one little section here, these 14 verses, just to give you an idea, today... We're going to be talking about what it means to be united with Christ, what it means to be in Christ, and all of the the beauty and the joy and the truth and the confidence that should flow from just that one truth of what it means to be in Christ, okay? We're just going to look at that today. Next week, we're going to look at one of the most controversial, but one of the most beautiful and important doctrines in the whole Bible that's woven throughout these first 14 verses, in fact, the whole book of Ephesians, in fact, the whole Bible, and it's this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, this word that, uh, that many of us are scared of, but is actually beautiful when we understand it, predestination. And you say, now, Brad, are you going to do that? Yes, we're going to do it, and we're going we're gonna to do it, we're gonna, and it's good for us because it's in God's word, and so um, next week would be a great week to bring your seat belts and your crash helmets, because we're going to chop it up. And then after that, um, we're going to look at kind of a final look of this first 14 verses of just the beauty of the triune work of God. God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and then we'll move on. And, and so we don't really have any timeline. We're not going to a fire. We're not in a rush. A couple things are going to happen. We are either going to eventually finish Ephesians and move on to what's next, or Jesus is going to come back, and a good number of us that are in this room are going to um, be with him, all right? And, and I say a good number because, listen, I always assume that this room is full of people 
who um, are, some, some of them are Christians, and some of you are not. All right, I'm, putting my, I'm putting my cards on the table. I think that there's probably very likely people in this room who are not Christians. And I think that there are people in this room who think that they're Christians, but they're not. And, and so what I want to do today is I want to, I, I, and I think the way that you become a Christian is by seeing the beauty of Jesus and it being so irresistible that you, because of God's grace that he gives you, can't help but love him. And so, so that's my plan today, okay? We're going to do that. We're going to just work our way through this, this filet mignon of the New Testament. And we're going we're gonna, to, as my mother told me, we're going to cut it up into small little bites. Because I don't want to have to do the Heimlich on any of you through the midway through this thing here. And, and choke up a piece of unchewed up meat. Right, this is getting kind of weird. I don't know. Let me just let me pray, and um, and let me get going. Now, Lord, as we step off in this beautiful letter, I pray, Lord, that you would humble us to see and savor Jesus. Lord, this book is full of spiritual protein for the soul. It's full of truth that not only saves us, but sanctifies us and makes us more like you and causes us to fulfill the great purpose for which you have saved us, to bring glory to your name. It shows us how we as a local church should live together. And Lord, it it contains in it just this beautiful picture of your saving, sovereign work in Jesus. And so Lord, for the Christians in this room, I pray that as we step off on this study that you would, as we pray so often, that you would stir our affections. As Jeremy prayed this morning as he read from Romans, that you would stir our affections for Jesus. And for people that are in this room that are not yet followers of Jesus, they have not yet turned from trusting in himself and turned from idolizing sin and coveting rebellion, Lord, would you cause them by your great mercy to be brought from death to life by the power of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I grew up in the house of a football coach. I've kind of been around sort of that arena, that environment most of my life, and, um, and, and now I have the privilege to be one of the coaches for my, uh, one of my son's football teams at River City Broncos. We won yesterday 33 to nothing, by the way, just so you guys want to, you guys want to know that score. But, um, but I've noticed that um, something that football coaches or really any athletic coach does a lot of times is, um, which is kind of funny, is, is they will invoke sort of this, this idea of identity of the team. You know, I, I heard my dad say it a thousand times. You know, when maybe his team wasn't playing that well at halftime, he would say, that's not who we are. You know, we're not playing Spartan football. That was the, the mascot of my high school. That's, we're, that's not who we are, right? And, you know, it kind of is funny because, I mean, you're just these little kids. I mean, it, it, it's just the high school they're going to. It doesn't really define all that they are, you know. That's not who we are. As if this little sophomore that can barely figure out how to buckle up his chin strap, that identifies I me. Mean, he's really waking up in the morning thinking, that's who I am, you know. And so actually, I did this the other day. It's just part of coach speak. And our our little kids were kind of having a bad practice. And I said to a couple kids, I said, and the team is the Broncos, right? 
That's our, 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 the name of our team this year. And I said, that's not who we are. That's not cowboy football. But see, we were the Cowboys last year. And so I kinda, and the little kids looked at me like, what? what? I, mean, I mean, that's not who we are. We're the Broncos, you know. I mean, it had sunk so deep in my heart that I couldn't even remember the name of our team. Right? This letter, in particular, these 14 verses, gets so deeply to who we are in Christ that, that I want us to see this, this notion right here, this one thought. There's really only one thought today and then a few implications that flow from it. And this one thought, this one overarching thought is what it means to be in Christ. So let me just kind of go ahead and throw it up there on the screen. My one point today, so you can kind of digest it, have it before we even read. One thought is that to be in Christ means that God the Father never sees the Christian apart from Jesus. Right? So to be in Christ, which this letter is full of that type of language. These first 14 verses are full of this phrase in Christ or through Christ or in the beloved or something, some derivation of that term in Christ means that God the Father never, from eternity past to eternity future, never sees a Christian apart from the work of God the Son, Jesus. All right, well, let me read, and then we're going to chop it up. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, that is one of the highest peaks in the scriptures. And we will be in this block of verses for the next couple weeks. Okay, let's go back to what we want to look at here. To be in Christ means that God the Father never sees the Christian apart from Jesus and his life and work. All right, so here's what I want us to do now. We're going to just look back through these verses very briefly, and then we're going to settle on and end with five things that I think understanding what it means to be in Christ should produce in our life. Okay, look, let's look, just let's, let's dwell on these verses here for just a moment, what it means to be in Christ. First of all, we said just kind of the overarching theme here that we want to settle on this week is that God the Father never thinks of the Christian apart from Christ. I want you to notice in verse 3, it says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, so first there we see that Christ is the portal. He's the fountainhead. He is the genesis. He's the origin of every spiritual blessing in God. Now, right away, we have to do a little bit of work to kind of sort out sort of the religious language that sort of, that sort of, um, a lot of times waters down the, the beauty and the power and the specificity of God's blessing in the life of a Christian because we, we live in, in the Bible but where we just, you know, I mean, our way of kind of criticizing people is saying, oh, bless her heart. You know, that's just kind of our way of tacking on to the end of the sentence. She's really kind of weird and we know what we're talking about here. Oh, bless. So we, and we kind of think of just everything and, and, and in a sense, everything is, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. That's in James chapter 1. And then in the Gospels, it says that God causes the, the sun and the rain to, to rise and fall on the just and the unjust. And so, in a sense, there is this notion of the common grace or the common blessing of God that rests on all of His creation. God is good. God does good. God blesses even the wicked by allowing them to breathe and for a time enjoy life here on this earth. And at times he even, he blesses just by his common goodness all people. But what's in view here, we know, we can tell just by verse 3 that God whittles it down here a little bit. And what he's speaking of is the spiritual blessing that comes through Jesus given to us, brought to us by the Holy Spirit, we'll see the work of the Trinity in a couple weeks, it comes through Jesus that rests on, that is the possession of, specifically, His children. And so what we're about to step off on here is not just something that, you know, everybody, that applies to everybody, it applies to Christians, to people that have trusted in Christ, who have put their hope and their trust in what Jesus has done in His life, death, burial, and resurrection as their only means for right standing with God. So let's look at a few of these things. Verse 4, it says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And we're going to cover this much more extensively next week when we looked at what it means to be 
chosen by God, predestined by God, or elected by God. And we will, we, will, we will go very specifically over what that means and all the implications, but let me just, just kind of throw this out here right now that clearly that means that we became Christians because before anything was made, God set his love and called out for himself a people. And so that means that if you're a Christian, the reason that you're a Christian is rooted in God's eternal love before the creation of the world. That means that you're not a Christian because you have any particular wisdom or knowledge or greater faith or better fruitfulness than anybody else. It means that you are a Christian because before you were even created, before you were born, before anything happened, before you exercised any faith, God set his love on you in Christ. It also means, because we know that how we are saved is through Christ's work on the cross, that the plan of redemption was something that was planned before God, before creation. So that, that has all sorts of implications, which would almost be too much for us to get in today. It's for another discussion, but it means that sin, it means that evil, it means that the fall, it means that the consequences of human rebellion, it means that it didn't sneak up on God. It means that the future is not open, it's not unplanned, it, God's not reacting to anything. Do you see that? And in one sense, that's weighty and sort of like, whoa, but, but as we'll see in just a moment, it, it should produce a sort of humility and awe in us that God is God and God is outside of time. God, God's not hoping and trying to prepare for the best possible future. God is, God is, God is outside of the past, He's, but He's in it. God is outside of the present, but He's in it, and God is outside of and not bound by the future, but he's in it. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So if you're a Christian, you owe nothing to your salvation that is within you. You owe it solely to the free, sovereign love of God. Verse 4, or verse 5, it says also that he did another thing for us through Jesus, that he predestined us for adoption. Similar notion to that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But, but notice the, the familial language there. That he predestined us, which is the same thing as saying that he chose us, he elected us. But, but he did this so that we might be his children for adoption as sons. And by the way, um, this is a beautiful notion here. A lot of times people, uh, there's a big argument going on with the... With the uh, the gender language in the New Testament. And so when we see things like sons, shouldn't it say sons and daughters? And, and, and so there's, trying to, there's this big movement in Bible translation to sort of level the playing field. And so when we read sons, is that, is that a sort of masculine language that should sort of make a, a, a woman or a, a, a women feel like they are maybe not as included in that? And actually the opposite is true. The, the notion that, that in the Greek world, in this language that Paul would write in in Greek... When he would say sons, 
that was actually scandalous because obviously he's including within that female Christians and for them to be heirs of sonship, to be heirs of that would, would have been scandalous in the Roman world at that time. And so what seems like from our perspective to be sort of gender exclusive language is actually incredible gender inclusive language by Paul to say that obviously male Christians, female Christians, both of them are adopted heirs of all that God has. Right? So we're not just sort of saved to be just sort of distant uh, representations of God's grace, but we're, we're adopted sons through Jesus. Verse 7, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we have redemption and forgiveness in Jesus. It's not outside of Christ. It's because of what Jesus has done in the cross, on the cross for us. Verse 8, it says that we have been lavished with rich grace and that refers back to the previous verse in verse 7. That that's the thing that gives us redemption and forgiveness. That's the portal of Christ's work. That, that, that this redemption and forgiveness becomes ours. But it also points forward to verse 9 where it says that this lavished, whatever he lavished on us, not only grace, but he also gave us wisdom and insight which makes known to us the mystery of his will. And that doesn't mean what car you should buy or what girl you should date or you know, something sort of temporal, it means this knowledge of God's will for us in eternity. It's his redemptive plan to rescue his people through Jesus. Verse 11, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. It mentions that we've been predestined again according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we have something. We, we, we have redemption. We have forgiveness. We we have adoption, and we have this inheritance that we'll dwell on in just a moment. And then in verse 13, it says that in Him, meaning in Christ, that we were, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that we will possess this inheritance that He speaks of in verse 11. That's one of the primary verses where we get the doctrine of the perseverance of Christians, meaning that once God makes you a Christian, you stay a Christian because of God's preserving grace for the rest of your life. We'll dwell more on that later. Now I want us to look at just a few things that understanding what it means to be in Christ should produce in the life of a Christian. And I want this just to cause worship to rise up in us. I want us to cause just us to see and savor Jesus, right? I just want us to, to see the beauty of these first 14 verses and what it means to be in Christ. The first thing that understanding what it means to be in Christ should produce in us, we've, we've hinted at it a few times here, it should produce in us humility. It should produce in us humility. Friends, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God made you a Christian. You're not a Christian because we were born in the Bible Belt or because we, you know, we got it and the guy next to us didn't. It, it should produce in us a, a sort of deep humility because 
the fact that we are even in Christ is rooted in God's decision before creation. So there should be no such thing as an arrogant or proud Christian. And by the way, there should be no such thing as an arrogant or proud or condescending Christian who understands the depth of these truths maybe better than the Christian next to them. So not only should it humble us as we look at the world around us, but it should humble us as we look at even our brothers and sisters whom we may have varying degrees of disagreement with. There should be no such thing as a cocky, arrogant Christian. This should humble us, right? The the whole trajectory of scriptures is the greatness and the glory of God, not us. And so the very fact that we're in Christ and that we have nothing to do, although we will look in the coming weeks at how us becoming a Christian actually in time works out and how we're responsible to believe and to trust and to exercise faith and to repent, certainly that's part of it. But it's not like we become in Christ because solely because we do those things, but because it was rooted in eternity past. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Friends, this should produce humility. This should produce utter humility in the life of a Christian. The second thing it should produce in us is assurance of the Father's love. Assurance of the Father's love. I think this flows from humility. Uh, He loves us because of Christ, not because of any good thing that we've done. We live in a merit-based world, right? You have to produce. I mean, you gotta, you've got to do the work to keep the job. We live in a system, in a world where, you know, we have to, we have to produce fruit in order to uh, gain attention or merit. And a lot of times we bring that mindset with us to Christ, but really this understanding of what it means to be in Christ should cause us to have this outside of us assurance that the Father loves us because He loves us. He loves us because He loves us. If you're a Christian, He loves you because He loves you. Not because of anything else. Now, in coming weeks, we'll see where that love becomes the motivating factor for fruitfulness. In fact, he says there in, in, uh, in, in the beginning verses, he says in verse 4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. So understanding this assurance shouldn't just cause us to sort of shrink back into just resting in that and not actually doing anything. That, that assurance becomes the motivating factor that frees us up to actually pursue Christ-likeness and to pursue holiness. But, but if we put that before what it means to be in Christ outside of ourselves and any work that we have done, then what we end up doing is we end up mixing the gospel. We end up, we end up turning it upside down and we think that we are, we are in Christ because of our works and because of what we're producing in Him when in reality we're assured of God's love when we're in Christ simply because He loves us. He loves us because He loves us. Thirdly, understanding what it means to be in Christ should produce in us strength in our fight against sin. Strength in our fight against sin. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. And that's not a, you know, that's not a scale. That doesn't only apply to you if you have only sinned this much this week or this month. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about the weight of that verse. Just just think about that verse right there. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And think think about how understanding that gives us strength in our fight against sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, says that God made him who knew no sin to actually be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so literally we, we get not only forgiveness in Jesus, but we actually get the righteousness of Jesus. Friends, how does this work in our life? How does, this, how does, this, how does understanding this sort of play out? Let me just give a personal example from my own life from just these past few days. Now, just because I'm weak and I'm in the flesh, these past few days have just sort of been racked with, with guilt and a sense of sin and failure and dwelling on and having my mind very easily go back to past sin, which then a lot of times will just kind of put me in this spiral of condemnation and just sort of giving up in my mind, yeah, that's... That's just kind of the futility of my existence. That's, you know, I know I'm a Christian, but that's kind of who I am. And it just kind of, just puts me in this cycle of sort of mild sort of spiritual depression and despair and lack of motivation for fruitfulness and godliness. And it's just a sort of cycle that sort of wells up in my heart and mind and kind of my thought life. And, and as I'm in God's providence preparing to just even think about what it means to be in Christ and dwelling on how this benefits us, what this then does in our life, how this applies to us, this particular idea of how understanding who I am in Christ and who we are in Christ becomes a strength for us to fight sin. The way that the Lord just gave me grace to combat that in my life is just to remember, no, no, that's not who I am. That may be the way I'm feeling right now, but that's not what the truest thing about me. That's not the objective truth of the scripture. And for these past three or four days, it's just been a sort of battle in my mind to know, don't go there. Don't give into that mindset. Don't give into that cycle. Just remember who you are in Christ. Just remember. And I can tell you, many times I failed in that, but just by God's grace, just these, just last night even, as I was just sort of pondering this in my office at the house, it's just like a breakthrough came through that I'm now free from that mindset that was trying to drag me down simply because I'm just going through this verse and I'm just remembering what Christ has done for me. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and now the righteousness of Jesus is mine. And so when God sees me, he sees me, he sees me through the lens of what Christ has done for me. He sees me never apart from Jesus. He loves me because he loves me. He doesn't love me because I might get through this particular broken mindset that I'm battling with right then. He loves me because he loves me. And there's two ways you can take that, friends. You can say, oh, well, God loves me, so I'll just fall into this thing. And if that's your mindset, then, then we, we realize that maybe we, we have to examine our own heart. Because Romans 6 says, why has grace come so that sin may abound? No, grace has come to strengthen us so that we might live for Jesus, right? 
And so it's in that moment that when we're battling with sin that, that understanding who we are in Christ gives us strength in our fight against sin. And, and by the way, let me just kind of throw in here, um, I read this little blog post a couple weeks ago about how when pastors um, preach a lot of times, they become sort of the hero of all their stories, you know? And I just gave you a little good example about how I kind of had a spiritual breakthrough last night as I was thinking about this. And friends, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm always coming out on the happy end of these stories. All right, I am... I'm often um, on the short end of this. But even then, we can be assured of God's love for us because we are in Christ. And when God looks at us, even in our failures, He sees the work of Christ, which then becomes an incredible motivation for running to the Father rather than away from Him because we know it's not based on our work. Number four, understanding what it means to be in Christ produces hope in our future with Christ. Hope in our future with Christ. Several times there in the last few verses in 11 through 14, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. It says... Uh, in verse 13, that we were sealed in him. And in verse 14, that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What is this inheritance? It is our life together with Christ forever. I was reading an excerpt of Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, which we're selling, we, we have in the Resource Center. And in it, he had this little thought that I thought was really just beautiful. We tend to uh, use the word the afterlife to refer to heaven as if these 60, 70, 80 years are really life, and then what comes next is the afterlife. And he says, actually, we should, we should refer to our life here in the flesh on earth as the before life, because actually life really begins in its fullness and its grandeur and its eternity and its never-ending joy after this life on earth is over. And I thought, boy, doesn't that change the way I, what a helpful phrase to change the way I just even think about life. I mean, don't we just, we hoard and we, we're just so anxious. I know I am so anxious about how everything will turn out here in these 70 or 80 years. And this verse, to understand this passage, to understand what it means to be in Christ should, should cause us to lessen our death grip on the things of this world and look up and see that life is not just these 80 years. Friends, this has a thousand implications for joy in the life of a Christian. That means that, that means, in fact, I was sitting down there right next to my son on the first row, and I was thinking, gosh, I hope that those chains hold on that two-ton thing that is right above my head, right there. And I don't mean to put that in your head, because now you're going to be looking at that for the rest of the service. But, but I mean, if this thing falls right now, if God in his providence decides that Brad's days are up, and this thing falls and crushes me. By the way, what an what a incredible way that would be to go. But really, that wouldn't be a tragedy because I would be with Christ. At that moment, I would, 
I would receive the inheritance. I would be with him forever. And it's not a white robe and a harp and some wings and, and a cloud. It's, it's Christ. It's joy. It's true life. It's who I was truly made to be, friends. And so, so this has a thousand implications in the life of a Christian. Tragedy, sickness, cancer, despair, stress. Our best life now, which is a broken notion, we don't have to live for these 80 years. Because our best life is to come. So it frees us from being dragged down unduly by the circumstances of these 80 years. So understanding who we are in Christ, it frees us from the death grip of this life. That doesn't mean that we don't care. It doesn't mean that we don't love. It doesn't mean that we give our heart to making as much as we can of Jesus in this life. But it means that this world and these few decades are not our ultimate home. And dwelling on that daily will produce an otherworldliness which will then produce fruitfulness in this life for the Christian. And finally, understanding what it means to be in Christ produces, I think, in us just worship. Worship. To know that I'm in Christ because... God made a decision on me before creation to know that this assures me of God's love no matter how racked with guilt and sin and, uh, I am to know what he has given me in Christ to know what my future is should, should produce in me a, just a sort of aroma a sort of joy <laughs> should produce in me a sort of energy and affection and love for Jesus, right? I mean, it should cause me to sing. It, it, and I'm not t- just talking about music when I'm talking about worship. It should cause my life to, to just sort of have this, this joy that's not the detached, goofy Christian culture joy, like, bless you, brother. How's oh, I'm just walking in faith and power. No, it's like this real, eternal sort of understanding of who you are in Christ sort of joy that transcends circumstance and time right and, and it should cause us to 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 be free right it, it should cause us it should cause an atmosphere to exist in this room when we gather together it should cause people who can't sing a lick like me to actually sing right it should cause men who spent way too much time blowing their Saturday on football really think about it it's 19 year old boys who are in tight pants chasing a leather ball. It should, it should cause those guys to just, who are kind of sleepy and tired and who haven't connected with their wives and coming in with their hands in their pocket and just kind of look at their watch while the band is playing, it should cause that guy to just sort of consider it and for him to sing, man. On the front row, it should cause you to sing. It should cause you to open up your Bible and don't want to know more about Jesus. It should cause you to worship. It should cause you to... Spend your money in a way that makes much of Jesus. It should cause you to interact with people who know Jesus in a way so that they will sense Christ's love in you. It should cause us to interact with people who don't know Jesus in such a way that they might see what it means to be in Christ. It should transform everything in our life, friends. It should cause us to worship. To worship. To just have this sort of joy bubbling over even as we weep. Even as, we, even as we sorrow. That's why Paul writes in Corinthians, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How can that be? Because when you understand what it means to be in Christ, there's just this sort of joy 
eternal that springs forth in the life of a Christian because they know that God loves them because God loves them and God never stops loving them and he loves them in Christ because of what Christ has done, not because what they have done. And that should cause us to break forth in worship, which is the whole point of the book of Ephesians, which is the whole point of the Bible. And as Jonathan Edwards said, it is the whole point of everything. It's the end for which all things were created. And Paul gets at it here. He says that all this has happened, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace so that God might be made much of. And when God is made much of in our lives, it is the most satisfying thing for us. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Friends, what do you need to do to be in Christ? Well, we're going to see it in here. It's God's decision on you, and so he gives you the very thing. If you're in Christ, if either you're a Christian right now or you're becoming a Christian, friends, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not asking you to come to church more, read your Bible more, consider yourself next to some guy who's worse off than you. Look to Jesus right now. Look to Jesus right now. Look to Jesus. He is altogether lovely. Turn from your sin and turn from self-trust and look to him even now. Even now. How could you, how could you read these 14 verses and not want that so bad? How can, how can you look at that and say, eh, I don't know. Frat parties are better. Now I think I'm going to spend a few more years waking up in the back of a pickup truck on Saturday morning. I'm going to spend a few more years blowing my money on myself. How can I mean, I'm not asking you to like, trade in joy to live some sort of joyless Christian experience. Come on, friends. What? This is so... Jesus is better. How could you not want that? Right now, friends, if you're not a Christian... Turn, turn right now. Look, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus right now and see that he's better than anything else. And go for joy. Go for joy. You were made to go for joy. Go for joy. It's only found in Christ. So turn from broken joy. Turn from counterfeit pleasure and trust in Jesus right now. Right now, believe in him. Believe in him. Say, Lord, I believe in you, what Jesus has done. I believe in it right now. Do that right now. Don't wait for somebody to coach you in a prayer or fill out a card. Right now, believe in Jesus. Believe in him right now. Turn from believing in yourself or broken promises or broken pleasure and believe in Jesus right now. Right now. And if you're already a Christian, oh, let it well up in your heart and let it cause you to worship God. He loves you because He loves you. He loves you because He loves you in Christ. Now let's pray together as the worship team comes back. Lord, um, help us now to see these things. 
Lord, for people in this room who do not know you, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith and repentance so that they can believe in Jesus, so that they can be in Christ. Lord, for Christians in this room, Lord, would you wake us from our slumber? Would you wake us from our addiction to staring really at ourselves? And would once again, by your Holy Spirit, would you lift our chins, would you lift our gaze so that we would ponder in awe and humility and joy and worship how you love us in Christ. How you love us in Christ. Again, do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.